0: Welcome to Access Utime, Tom Williams. Before we jump into today's conversation, some unfinished business from yesterday. You'll recall that yesterday we talked with Kate Washington, uh, who, in her new book, recounts her experiences as primary caregiver to her husband Brad, as he suffers through a very serious illness. And uh, the book is about caregiving and the state of caregiving in America. It's called Already Toast: Caregiving and Burnout in America. And we received this email from Steve in Beaver Dam, Arizona. Steve says, Listening to Tom's illuminating, often moving interview with Kate Washington, it occurs how important it is that Washington, D.C., hear her firsthand in the trenches testimony about caregiving. I do hope she's called to testify in front of the relevant committees in the House and Senate, and that real reform ensues. Appreciate that comment, uh, Steve. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Now our conversation with Judy Kawamoto from January. Of the roughly 120 people forced from their homes by Executive Order 9066, around 5,000 were able to escape incarceration beforehand by fleeing inland. In her new book, Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America, Judy Kabamoto offers insight into voluntary evacuation, a little-known Japanese-American experience during World War II. In the book, she addresses her personal and often unconscious reactions to her parents' trauma, as well as her own subsequent travels around much of the world, exploring, learning, enjoying, but also unconsciously acting out a continual search for a home. Judy Kabamoto is a retired uh, psychotherapist and joins us uh, for the hour today. Uh, Welcome to the program.
1: Thank you. Glad to be here.
0: Good, good, good to have you on. Fascinating uh, history and uh, and your personal experience as well. I wonder if we could just uh, start out with a brief passage uh, from the book. I understand you have the book with you. Uh, so this is just the first page uh, from the preface. I wonder if you could just uh, read that uh, that for us. Page Roman numeral okay. nine.
1: Let me see if I can find that. Um, So, I'm sorry, the first page from the preface?
0: Yes, yes, just that first page from the preface.
1: Okay. Um, Digging up stories about the past, about one's family, and about one's early life, wherever that may have taken place, can be a trying affair. So many of these stories, at least for me, have been difficult memories. Memories of racism and hardship and poverty Memories that, under normal circumstances, one tries not to dwell on. In fact, growing up, my personal motto was not try to remember, but try to forget. But life doesn't always let you have your way. There's a particular question I know I will be asked whenever I meet another Japanese American over the age of, say, 50. A question I always have to respond to with the same disappointing answer. The question... What camp was your family in? My answer, we didn't go to a camp. The questioner is not referring to Girl Scout camp or church camp or junior high school leadership camp. No, the questioner, clearly seeing I am a woman of Japanese ancestry, is referring to the World War II incarceration camps for Japanese Americans.
0: Yeah, that that's very striking. And you go on to say that, uh, you know, over time uh, you got this question you were you know, irritated, but but mostly frustrated, but you say most of all it left you feeling unseen and like a perpetual outsider. So, outsider among even potentially, you know, uh, a community which, which could have included you.
1: Exactly, yes.
0: Uh, so, why did you, uh, obviously, uh, you know, very interesting history, but why did you especially want to tell your story?
1: Well, I think that this, that little interchange I had with that person who, um, when I said we didn't go to a camp, I was, I was really stunned by the fact that he just wasn't interested then. He didn't want to know why. He didn't want to find out what did happen to my family. Uh, He just kind of walked away and it really was, um, it was so... A kind of dis- disconfirming, or if that's the word, it made me feel so invisible. And I also just got really angry, and I thought, well, you know, there are other stories here that should be told, and I'm going to tell this one because I feel like my parents need some recognition about what, what really did happen to them, because it certainly wasn't fun or easy, or um, they didn't get to stay where they had planned to live. And plan to make their lives. So, I decided to write that story.
0: <laughs> yeah, it's it's, it's fascinating. Um, so, before we get into your story, uh, and there's some uh, you found out doing research that some five thousand uh, other folks who who experienced the, the kind of similar history that you did. Um, uh, but remind us about the, uh, the Japanese Americans who were who were sent to what they were called internment camps so for people who made be a little fuzzy with that. Uh, This is Executive Order 9066. uh, FDR issued this order. What was the rationale? What was the reasoning that was given?
1: Well, my understanding is that it was because um, the, the rationale that was spoken and told to the people was that they were a security risk. They were afraid that the government and some of the the people around them were afraid that Japanese Americans, because I, I think partly because um, they were so uh, close together and in less, some rather large communities, like in Los Angeles and in the Bay Area and in parts of Washington and Oregon, they were rather large communities. And the feeling was that these people would probably um, rebel uh, side with the, with the nation of Japan and could not be trusted, and therefore needed to be put away someplace where they could be watched. And um, I, I mean, I can understand that that rationale was given. My personal feeling is that the people who they were wanting to get rid of were doing very well. They had very. Um, lucrative personal businesses some of them and they were doing very well with farming in places like the Central Valley of California and even down south a little further with some of the area that was very arid and most people just turned up their noses to it and said oh that's not going to grow anything what why bother but my understanding is that some Japanese Americans did go down to that area and figured out how to uh, probably irrigate and um, grow some some pretty um, lucrative crops down there. So the fear was, uh oh, you know, these people are going to take us over and um, we're not going to have it. So hmm. they were they were rounded up and put in camps.
0: Hmm. Unless we forget, uh, I'm assuming that some 120,000 uh, people. Most were citizens, right, and and so this is essentially, yes, as, as you write, yes. uh, tossing out the Constitution.
1: Exactly. Yes. Um, I my understanding, my figures that I I found, and this is now several, of course, several years old. Uh, Two thirds were American-born citizens, and their elders, their you know their parents, their grandparents were um, still considered that term that. Weird term of um, uh, aliens, and um, they actually were not allowed to become citizens uh, through some early law. So uh, otherwise, they probably would have wanted to become citizens and taken, you know, whatever tests or do whatever process they had to go to to become citizens. But they were they were not allowed to do that through through law. So um, there was not a question of loyalty, really, within the, their communities. They were all very loyal, and they liked being where they were, and they liked being um, able to be citizens when they could.
0: One more thing on uh, you know, those who were, who were sent to internment camps, before we get to your story. Um, the, the, I, I believe uh, most were promised you can return to your lives you know, after the security risk is over. Uh, but that didn't turn out to be the case, right? Uh, businesses, homes that all <laughs> yeah. been taken over.
1: Yeah, I. The, my understanding is that yes, exactly what you said. That so many of their homes, quote, you know, and businesses, quote, were were pretty quickly taken over by people who were not doing as well. White people who were not doing as well, uh, or people who just. I thought, wow, this is a this is a good moment. And um, my um, a few years ago, I went to um, the International District in Seattle just to kind of check out where my parents had uh, had been living and working. And um, there, there's very clear information there that um, some of the businesses that were so hastily evacuated because the the people. You know, who owned the Japanese Americans who owned the businesses didn't really have a chance to do anything to get, to get rid of them, to sell them or to take them, take them apart and store things. They were just, you know, ushered out. And, um, it was pretty fast, the, um, the takeover by the uh, white population. And they were very pleased to be able to just move into businesses and homes that, had pretty much been left the way they, um, they'd they been functioning all along. Um, so businesses were well stocked and homes were, um, most people didn't have an opportunity to take furniture with them or any, any major um, personal belongings except, you know, they could pack a suitcase. My understanding is that what I've always heard and read is that you could pack one suitcase and um that was it and you were you were taken off to at the time they didn't know where. So um I I did visit some of those places in uh, in Seattle and did see some of the businesses and um a museum that was built for uh, documenting that history and um it was it was interesting because that's a fairly large district and, um, and some of the businesses there are still, you know, they're still thriving. Um, they haven't, uh, most of the people who, uh, run them and own them are not Japanese Americans, many are other, um, ethnic Asians, um, Cambodians and Laotians and, um, Koreans, but, um, they eventually you know they were eventually able to take on the businesses from some of the white people who who had tried and some pretty unsuccessfully to take over the businesses that the Japanese Americans had left. Mm.
0: So, um, uh, tell us about uh, voluntary evacuation. This is in quotes, right? <laughs> um <That's> right. <laughs> uh, So, what, what happened with your parents and others like them? Did, did, you, did they see the handwriting on the wall, or did somebody tell them you, you got to leave, or what, what happened?
1: Well, apparently, my understanding is that the, the rule was that um, if you had some relative or had some friends, or had a job, waiting for you in what what was generally just called the interior of the country um, at that time. You could go there and reestablish yourself, um, but that was just not the case for most people. You know, they had established themselves as um, professionals and as business people in the areas that they ended up having to leave so um, in the case of my parents my grandparents my father's parents were farming in Wyoming and they were doing fairly well um, they didn't have a lot of competition from other um, Asian Americans at that point <laughs> and um, Wyoming was still probably being pretty um, un- unpopulated um, and so my parents decided that they would just go there, um, and stay with my grandparents because uh, my father said, "I I just I'm just refusing to raise my children in in a camp. I'm uh, I'm just not doing it." So they um, they left and stayed with my grandparents. Hmm. Uh,
0: so you took a, in the book you you are, you take a trip to Seattle many years later, of course. Um, it's trying i guess uh, in essence, trying to find out what you, what your the life your parents lost, right? when they were forced to yeah move yes, to the interior uh-huh. what what did you what did you find what uh, what kind of life do you think they would have had if they hadn't have had to go to wyoming and then montana and Colorado?
1: well, you know as i as i um had said a little bit ago that the actual international district had changed a lot and um, the, a lot of the businesses that had been Japanese American, uh, were first taken over by whites, and they, many of them, did not do well because people, um, bless their hearts, the white people in the community just refused, to <laughs> refused to um, give them any business because they were, they were aware of the, um, the unfairness of the whole thing and. So um, other ethnic Asians had, had taken over much of the, the um, professional and business lives of, of people living in the International District. My parents, at the time of the evacuation, um, my father was a student at the University of Washington, and um, he had to work during the day, but he went to classes at night, and um He um, was, you know, trying to hold on to that because one thing that he, and of course I think the stereotype is in part true that that Japanese Americans really value, is an education. So he was doing what he could to get his, and um, uh, it was, you know, it wasn't easy and it wasn't particularly fun, but he was... Hanging in there, working, uh, working days, and um, going to classes at night. So um, when when they left, he had to give all of that up.
0: Yeah, and uh, and, uh, and you write that your your mother also lost a community of of other you know young Japanese American mothers and uh, a support system, right?
1: Yes, yes. See, um, uh, which is always an interesting thing to me because I I never quite understood how she got interested in that, or maybe it was just that she um, could see people, you know, around her taking taking on this kind of work, but she became trained as a a beautician, and one thing that she got very good at was cutting hair. (laughs) So... um, she, when we were growing up, she would always cut our hair um our meaning myself and my two sisters she would cut cut our hair because she knew how to do it and um so when when they had to uh leave, she had to give all of that up and um there's a process where if you're doing that work you you have to renew a license to to be to remain a beautician and, um, I think it's probably a state license, and so she has, um, we have records, my sister who keeps some of these, um, documents, has records of my mom, my mom's, uh, licenses for, for maybe five years or so, and then, of course, they just stopped altogether because she was, um, and, you know, went to camp, and, or went to Wyoming, and, uh, I didn't pick
0: up the business there. Yeah. It's very poignant. that uh, the, you know, every year and then they stop and, and never to be renewed. Right.
1: Right.
0: <clears throat> um, let's take a, a brief break. Uh, when we come back, um, I want to hear about, uh, life in, uh, you were born in Wyoming and then raised in Montana and then went to, to Colorado. And, um, I want to talk about, you have a whole tra- a chapter on, on trauma. It's called mind the gap. And, uh, Uh, you know, the the ways people deal with trauma. Of course, you learned about that as a psychotherapist um, and this particular trauma in your family. We'll have more following this break.
2: Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and Silicon Slopes Magazine, a hub of Utah startups, business, and tech, contributing articles and insights from the Utah community. Information on advertising in print and digital versions at siliconslopesmagazine.com. For the past two years here on Utah Public Radio, we've been bringing you a weekly dose of research and exploration. We call it undisciplined because we work really hard to take scientific studies, which are usually written in journals intended for people who share a background in a subject matter, and make them accessible for just about everyone. There are more than 100 episodes available wherever you get your podcasts, or you can catch us every Thursday morning at 1030 here on UPR.
0: Hi, it's Francis Lamb. This week, we learn why it should be our duty to eat more sea urchins. And really, it's a job you're going to want to do. We learn about a wild technique for homemade falafel, and internet superstar Allison Roman gets us going on ways to really make breakfast the most important meal of the day. That's The Splendid Table from APM, American Public Media.
2: Sundays at noon on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest today is Judy Kawamoto, and the book is Forced Out A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. Of the roughly 120,000 people forced from their homes by Executive Order 9066, around uh, 5,000 were able to escape incarceration beforehand by fleeing inland. And uh, in her book, uh, Judy Kawamoto offers insight into voluntary evacuation, a little-known Japanese-American experience during World War II. and recounts her family's uh, history. Uh, So uh, just briefly, Judy Kawamoto, you you were born there in Wyoming, but at a certain point your parents... um, well, I, I, you're right. Your your dad, even though he grew up there in Sheridan, uh, couldn't find work. Um, I guess people wouldn't, wouldn't wouldn't hire him, and so there was land uh, in Montana, and I guess the government said, "Well, let's let's have folks raise uh, raise food, right?"
1: Yes, yes, and especially uh, sugar beets because people were languishing for <laughs> for their. Um, because of their lack of ability to get sugar, and I'm not quite sure why that was true, but um, of course we probably all heard some stories about people in England really hurting because they couldn't make frosting for their cakes and they couldn't make cookies, and so that was it was kind of a big deal to be able to raise sugar, sugar beets, and make sugar. Mm-hmm.
0: Uh, and your—it uh, sounds like your grandparents moved with you to Montana.
1: You know, I—I I am not clear exactly how they got there. I mm-hmm. believe that they moved first because they seemed to be set up before we we arrived. Um, so I don't know what made them leave Sheridan. I never really quite got that piece of history. Much to my
0: um, regret, I wish I knew more about that. Yeah, uh, I want to pause here just to just to mention your grandmother. Uh, sounds like a remarkable woman. Uh, so uh, she was married to a fellow. He decided to go back to Japan for whatever reason, and she said, "No, I'm yes. not going back." <laughs> <laughs>
1: yes, that was Grandma. <laughs> so
0: I guess she like she yes, she knew you right she knew that she'd be giving up uh, quite a few freedoms. Uh, as a woman if if she went back to Japan at that time, right?
1: Yes, I think that that was probably what made her decide not to do it because she was she was very um, uh, I think not only um, a hard worker, but she was pretty creative and um, she she was, I think brave. she wasn't easily scared off. she was willing to try things and take a chance on you know, making, doing something.
0: Yeah. Uh, tell me a bit about your parents. Uh, they, they You learned years later, I think, uh, theirs was an arranged marriage.
1: Yes. Boy, what a shock that was. I had no idea, because, of course, they, to me, were um, a modern generation, and, um, you know, growing up um, in the 50s and early 60s, uh, I graduated high school in 61, so m- mostly the 50s, I guess. And if you think back about on that time, um, the, the role of women was pretty prescribed, and women looked a certain way. Um, you know, they had usually had their hair done, well done, and wore lipstick and makeup, and um, uh, at that time, big, puffy, crinoline skirts were coming in, coats were coming in, so their skirts were kind of sticking, sticking out and looking very fancy, and sweaters. And in school, the girls would wear um, sweaters and skirts and um, uh, bobby socks that would match the color of their sweaters and some kind of maybe white buck shoes or loafers or something, and so it was very. Um, people were very, you know, they were conscious of looking right and doing doing the right thing in terms of fashion. So, um, so I think my grandmother was somebody who paid attention to that, even though she couldn't always um, al- always do exactly the the most fashionable thing because she was she was working most of the time. mm
0: mm-hmm. um, Now. Uh, before we get to uh, to to some of the rest of this, I wonder if you have a passage from the book you'd like to to read.
1: Um, well, I do. It's not necessarily um, exactly to the point of what we've been talking about. But I do have a <clears throat> excuse me. <clears throat> I have a passage here about. Oh, sorry. <clears throat> I'm having um some allergy stuff going on. I think oh. it's the, um, <laughs> the dry leaves and things here in Colorado. Right. So right. A little croaky. Um, <clears throat> sorry. Um, it's about when we moved to, to Denver mm, and yeah. I, um, I had to go to a junior high school. That was, uh, for me, it was a big junior high school, probably 300 kids or something like that. Um, and, um you know it was it was my father was dead set on not having us uh get cheated out of our education because of course he always felt that he had been that uh cheated and um so he made sure we lived in the in the part of the the city that had decent schools, and so we were <laughs> we were living in east Denver, and um I went to my my class in, in junior high school and was pretty shocked that uh, the the class just my my class alone probably was as big as the entire little country school that I had just left so <laughs> it was a, an adjustment mm-hmm. um, but I do have a section I can read from that y- yes um, the more I took in With this new junior high school the more i wondered where i belonged and i didn't seem to fit in comfortably in any specific group i had never met anyone jewish before junior high school but i soon learned the meaning of words like synagogue menorah and hanukkah and their importance to my many classmates who came from jewish backgrounds some came from families who were very liberal in their religious and social practices Others were from families who practiced their religion more strictly. I was learning to make distinctions among my friends. Other friends came from families who were considered old Denver families, meaning they had taste and manners and old money. My family was struggling working class, but because of the elevated value we placed on education, I seemed to be making friends with the kids who clearly came from much better-off middle-class families. Our values, goals, and aspirations weren't all that different. It was a financial gap that separated us. Well, that and some of the social behaviors that only my siblings and I noticed. As a minority in every sense. it was up to us to learn the ways of the mainstream. I clearly remember the shock and confusion I experienced the first time a friend offered me a cookie. We were having lunch together at school, and she offered me one of the cookies on her lunch tray. I dutifully and automatically responded with the manners I had learned at home from the time I was able to learn. I politely refused, waiting to be coaxed until I finally gave in and took one. But my friend, taking me at my word, took a cookie for herself and put the rest aside. I thought this was round one and that clearly our little drama was unfinished. She would come back with the cookies and insist that I have one. Only then could I comply. But for her, that was the end of it. She had offered and then taken her own cookie. I could tell she wasn't being rude. So this must be the way things were done. It took a few more times of testing the rules and ending up deprived until I eventually learned to accept something the first time it was offered, as that was likely to be the last time.
0: Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Learning kind of the hard way. (laughs) <laughs> the, the rules yeah. there yeah it got it kind of low stakes but still um yeah thanks for reading that appreciate that uh so it's junior high uh, you know i think any person of that age uh feels the need to fit in you you had some mm-hmm. I, I don't know how you felt then about about fitting in of course there are larger questions of you know culture and assimilation but uh Sounds like you were making friends, but of course you were you were a minority as well.
1: Yes, yes, yeah. You know what? When I think back on it today, I think of how. um, Well, I I understand two two parts to this. I guess one is that I'm very I'm very grateful to the um, generosity and the welcoming um, atmosphere. That the school, the junior high, um, established when when I first came because I started slightly after um, school has school had already begun and um, and so I was you know I was coming in late I had to register late I had to be classes the whole thing so I kind of stood out to begin with but um, I, I was very I was very um I think surprised and very pleased that people were were very accepting and generous and um didn't act strange around me or didn't um ask me a lot of weird questions um they just kind of took it in stride that i was gonna I was gonna be part of the, part of their class mm. um but I think the other other part was that i I really did have to learn. New ways of being in the world, and and it was definitely um, it was different from what I had grown up with, and the way I was used to thinking about people and interactions with people, which was, I think, in Japanese culture, the traditional culture is that you um, you think of the other person first, and you do a, what you can to make them comfortable and accommodate their needs, and um, and they're appreciative. And I think the underlying unspoken aspect of that is that you know that that will be reciprocated um, in time or with the opportunity. It's not, it, it doesn't go unnoticed. And so if I'm visiting a friend and um, they go all out and offer me cookies and food and, um, that works, then, um, when they come visit me, I'm, it's pretty much expected that I would do the same. So, um, that was not necessarily true growing up in a, in a white world where everybody thinks of themselves as individuals and independent and trying to kind of make it on their own and prove, prove themselves. And, um, If you can keep up, fine. And if you can't, well, that becomes your problem. (laughs) Mm
2: -hmm.
0: Yeah, yeah. Uh, I want to just read a couple of sentences uh, here and then have you respond. Um, This is from the the chapter that I mentioned, Mind the Gap. My parents created a very large gap in my life, you write, by waiting until I was an older teenager living in Denver to mention why they had left Seattle for Wyoming all those years before. Then skipping it down a bit, decades later, in my work as a psychotherapist, it became clear to me one motivation for that kind of pervasive silence is trauma. And so, you, and you talk about trauma, of course, you know about trauma as a psychotherapist. Um, so you write that this is not unusual. Um, big traumatic event. Uh, you know, folks um, ha- have a need or or an impulse to let's just get on with life and pretend everything's normal, right? And one way you deal with that is is not talk about it.
1: Mhm yes, absolutely
0: uh, just, so um, yeah, so your parents dealt yes, with yes. it apparently just <laughs> yeah, your parents dealt with this this way apparently uh-huh
1: uh-huh yeah they um i I think it was both that that was that's just kind of a um i guess a, a an almost universal way of dealing with trauma. Um, but it was also for, for my parents and for many Japanese Americans, it was shameful. It was so shameful to have been singled out like that and put in, in camps and barricades prisons, you know, and, um, and so you certainly don't want to dwell on the shame. You want to prove that you're an upstanding citizen and you do all the right things and, um, there's nothing shameful about you. So, um... That was also, I think, a big reason why it just wasn't uh, a subject to be discussed. You know, you carried on with life and you you did all the things that were expected and more because you wanted to prove that you were worthy. So, um, And I think in, the, in Japanese culture, shame is much more um, of a prevalent feeling than... In American culture where it's more guilt I think people tend to be made to feel guilty as opposed to feel ashamed
0: mm-hmm uh, you go on to write that um, trauma never really goes away it <clears throat> just never really gets talked about it gets buried consciously repressed but not diffused you see the nasty thing about trauma is it can continue to do its dirty work long after the direct experience of the event A- and I think handed down right what uh, how did this uh, you know, I, I guess you felt like you had a fairly normal childhood, I guess. But then these things uh, c- come out. Uh, what were your feelings at the time when you learned about this?
1: Well, when I guess, I guess when I really learned about it as a psychological um, aspect of of a person, I um, I started to think about how did I end up dealing with that trauma in my life? The fact that my parents had been um, removed and forced to live places where they didn't want to live do things they didn't want to do and never actualize themselves um, you know I I I started to understand more my sense of lifestyle which was to not ever really feel like I had to settle down anywhere like I could just pick up and take off and Move to a new place, whether it was a new city, a new state, a new apartment, a new country, which I never quite made, <laughs> but mm-hmm. um, but I thought about it frequently. Well, I'll, I'll just move to another country because that would be fun and exciting and interesting, and um, so I I never thought very much about about moving. Um, and you know, when you move, it's it's basically very disrupting. Um, Everything has to get packed up, and and then
2: you know you have
1: to find a place, then you have to unpack, <laughs> and so it's it's a it's a big process. Um, but for some reason, I just I just never thought too much about it until I realized that that in a way it was a, a recapitulation of my my parents' experience of having to do that without any input from themselves, and. Um, in that I unconsciously was kind of acting that out, that I didn't have to ever settle down and put pictures on my walls or um, buy a lot of uh, china or anything that would need a lot of work to be packed up and moved on. So um, I, I see that. I saw that when I started to think think it over I saw that and I and I still see that now as a part of a, of a response to trauma mm.
0: what um, what has it done for you to to, to jump into this history your you know the overall history your your family's history, your personal history to, to examine it I guess there are painful aspects of digging it up but uh, maybe some healing aspects as well.
1: Yes, I, I think so. Um, yes, I... I um, you know, I, I don't think when I started to write that I had a particular goal. Um, and I wish I could remember who told me this, because I, I can't. I just remember that I was told at some point, well, if you're, you want to be a serious writer, you have to do it every day. <laughs> I had to really think about that because I, I wasn't sure how serious a writer I wanted to be, and doing it every day. But um, but I decided, okay, I'll give it a shot because I I think one of the and this sounds very um, it's kind of shallow, but I thought, yeah, you know, here I am. I've written a few a few essays here and there, and what a drag to have to try to figure out how to get them published because I. I haven't written them just for the hell of it. I would like to see some of these thoughts that I have had over time um, shared with other people uh, in in a more public manner than just telling a friend. And so um, the thought of trying to figure out how to get an individual essay published was so overwhelming that when somebody said to me, well, you know, if you really want to be serious about writing. You have to do it every day, and you can write write a book. I thought, well, I'll give that a shot because I could put everything together in one book. And then if that doesn't um, take off or if people aren't interested, then okay, they're not interested in the book. But it's not like getting rejected for ten essays or <laughs> or something, you know, along those lines. So that's kind of how it happened. And um, and the process itself—it was—it um, was difficult to to try to remember some of that stuff, of course, but because it wasn't pleasant. But it was also I wanted to honor my parents because, you know, they've been through so much, and they never got much. Um, you know, nobody really acknowledged what they'd been through, and. They were just happy to be able to continue to work and take care of their families. But when you go through something like that, it does change your life. And I, uh, I just wanted to give them a nod and say thank you. You, deserve some, um, you. you deserve some credit for doing all that, you know, and going through all that and, and surviving it, actually, surviving it, it, it well, you know.
0: You, uh, you write this well in The Dedication. For my parents Rose and George Kawamoto, at a time when everything was taken away from them, they never let go of their humanity, which, of course, speaks very well of them.
1: Mm-hmm. Yeah. I think that's who they were.
0: Yeah, yeah, that's wonderful. Well, let's uh, take another break. Uh, when we come back with we'll uh, our last segment with uh, Judy Kawamoto, uh, who is author of Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America. We'll have that following this.
2: Support for Utah Public Radio programming comes from our members and Lynn's Audio Video, serving Cache Valley for more than 63 years, offering cell phone repair, sales, and service on brands like Sony, Yamaha, Samsung, and more. Located at 1655 North Main in Logan. Information at lynnsaudiovideo.com.
0: I'm Senator Dan McKay. I want you to join us for both sides of the aisle from KCPW here on Utah Public Radio, a weekly debate over politics, policy, and current issues where I give the truth, Shireen says something, and Natalie tries to moderate the
2: middle. Both Sides of the Aisle attempts to help you understand the important questions facing you, the residents of the state. Don't miss the conversation. Tune in Thursday
0: mornings, 10 o'clock, here at Utah Public Radio. I'm Jay Allison, producer of The Moth Radio Hour, and I hope you'll join us for our show here on Utah Public Radio. With true personal stories told live without notes to standing room crowds around the world, Moth shows are renowned for the range of human experience
2: they reveal. That's The Moth Radio Hour, Saturday evening at 6, right here on Utah Public Radio. A new book explores the history of the Sackler family, which is facing immense legal and political pressure over its role in the opioid epidemic. I suspect that where we will end up at the end of the day is that the Sacklers will keep the bulk of their fortune, but I don't think there's any getting back their good name. How the Sacklers revolutionized the medical
0: marketing of drugs and misled the public about the dangers of opioids on the next All Things Considered from NPR News.
2: This afternoon from 3 to 6.30 on Utah Public Radio. Today's Access Utah episode was first broadcast in January.
0: Thanks for joining us for Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We're talking with Judy Kawamoto. Uh, Her book out from University Press of Colorado is called Forced Out, A Nikkei Woman's Search for a Home in America, uh, the early uh, part of World War II. Uh, As we know, uh, many Japanese Americans were incarcerated, uh, forced to internment camps, uh, there were others uh, who, if they had relatives in the interior, uh, could could do that. And so Judah Kawamoto's uh, family did that, but they were, they were forced out in the Seattle area with repercussions throughout their lives. Um, and we have uh, about 10 minutes left in this conversation. You can join it by email to upraccess at gmail.com if you would like. Um, the, there are some very harsh ironies, of course, in this history. Uh, one that you uncovered is just breathtaking. Um, you, you learned at a certain point that, uh, I think this is through reading an article or something. I'm not sure how you, I guess you can tell me how you learned this. Um, but it, it was Japanese-American soldiers who liberated Dachau. I hadn't known that before I read the book. A- and they were threatened with court-martial if they, if they said anything about it. Why, why was that?
1: Well, I think that, I mean, I don't have any um, glowing and uh, highly intellectual understanding of that exactly. It's just that I I think that racism was so strong in the country at that time um, because they were still fighting the war that um, they they just couldn't allow um, this Japanese... American uh, regiment to uh, take, that, take that honor from what they thought should go to white soldiers. Um, it just wouldn't seem right. And it's possible that some people in the um, government at that time also realized that it might, it might seem strange to some people who actually knew what was going on with Japanese Americans that um, here, here were these soldiers American soldiers of Japanese descent who were freeing Jews from um, this terrible situation in in, in, in Europe. So um, they just covered it all up and uh, never really gave credit where credit was due.
0: Well, and the very fact of the 442nd Regimental Combat Team is is you know there's there, there's so much there. Uh, unit of Japanese-Americans fought in the European uh, theater. Some of them uh, joined right from the camps.
1: Yes, yeah. Well, that, to me, is just... Uh, it, it's a, that's a bitter one for me. I, I find that really hard to take, and I don't quite understand how... I mean, I, I understand it, as I say in the book, that the way that it was justified by the people themselves was that this was the only thing that was going to prove their loyalty actually going out and joining the military and dying for the country. And I think that's right. I think they were right about that, that, that that was the ultimate sacrifice, and that's what they had to do to show that they were loyal American citizens and not secretly spying on Japan or spying for Japan and um, sending secret coded messages and all that kind of, um, you know, BS, basically. Um, so they... they uh, Formed the the four um, hundred and forty second and fought bravely and of course um, were at at this point I'm I'm not sure that this is still a, an accurate fact but at the time I was writing they had suffered the most casualties of any um, regiment uh, at that in that war so um, I've heard some uh, pushback on that I have no idea. What you know? What that was all about? Because I didn't follow it up. But um, my understanding is that the day that, they, that uh, 442nd did experience the most casualties. So mm-hmm. that's that's kind of how I leave it.
0: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, another uh, fascinating fact. I think you learned this later. Uh, German POWs worked on your parents' farm.
1: Yes, that was a shock too. My sister who. Uh, was old enough to um, have have just noticed that. Uh, Excuse <clears throat> She was four years older than than I. She's sadly um, no longer with us. But um, now she was the one who told me, and I I was just stunned. I couldn't <laughs> I couldn't believe it. It just seemed like such a bizarre irony that I I just I I just had to put it down in black and white and kind of look at it for a while and think about it, because it was so bizarre.
0: Yeah, that is, that is. Uh, I wonder, uh, here at the end, uh, if you have, uh, do you have another passage, uh, short passage that you could read for us?
1: Um, well, uh, okay, here's one um, <clears throat> about my grandmother and her cooking. She was an excellent cook, and we always took it for granted and didn't realize until later the how what a good cook she was. Um, so this one, I hope, is short enough. Um, it's talking about her waffles, which were something that we kids just love to um, wait for. <laughs> Although her waffles and bread were worth mentioning, Grandma's tour de force was her homemade noodles. She could have made noodles for any dish she wanted but she always stuck to making them for traditional bowls of steaming hot ramen. Making her own ramen noodles was a labor-intensive job, so when she decided to make them for us, she would marshal her forces, that is, us kids, to help her. Perhaps the only time she could manage to make noodles was when we were around to give her a hand. At any rate, the important item that made it all possible was a noodle machine, a hand-cranked metal contraption, that was screwed to the edge of a table or counter, and when fed a slice of dough, would send strands of fine noodles out the other end. That was the last step, the actual appearance of long strands of noodles that had to be laid out lengthwise on sheets of butcher paper, dusted with flour, or perhaps cornstarch to keep them from sticking back together. Before that, there was the making of the dough, which Grandma would need to her own specifications of firmness and she would then roll it out on the table and cut it into sections around six inches wide, um, which would fit the width of the noodle machine. One of us kids would feed the dough to the machine. Another, another of us would crank the handle, and whoever was left would help Grandma take the strands of noodles exiting from the other end and get them onto the sheets of dusted paper. We thought it was great fun. I am now betting that Grandma thought it was a pain in the neck, but something she was willing to do just to make us happy.
0: <laughs> Wonderful. Gives you a real, a real uh, sense for your for your grandmother.
1: Thank you. Yes, I, I was hoping so. <laughs> yeah,
0: definitely. Well, we reached the, the the end of our time here. Um, the, the book's a fascinating book, uh, it's out from University Press of uh, Colorado, forced out a Nikkei woman's Search for a home in America. And Judy Kawamoto has uh, joined us. Uh, thanks so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you so much. I really, really appreciate this this opportunity, and thank you for for doing this and for doing uh, all your good work, which is which is terrific.
0: Thank you so much.
2: Utah Public Radio congratulates Jeannie Sir and Kaylee Foster, recipients of USU's College of Humanities and Social Sciences 2021 Recognition Awards. UPR Business Services Officer Jeannie Sir received the True Blue Award, and Kaylee Foster was recognized as the UPR Student Intern of the Year. Kudos to Jeannie and Kaylee from Utah Public Radio.
1: This is Utah Public Radio, a statewide service of Utah State
2: University and the
1: College of Humanities and Social Sciences. KUSR Logan, KUSK
2: Vernal, KUSL Richfield, KUST Moab, KCEU Price, KUSU FM Logan, also heard and streaming online at upr.org. This is Katie Swain, and I'm so happy to report that we have reached our $50,000 spring fundraising goal, and we've even exceeded it. Throughout our spring member drive and in the weeks to follow, so many of you heard the call for support and answered it in strength. Thanks to all of you who donated for supporting fact-based, thought-provoking journalism and conversation on UPR. Your involvement during this critical time is so very important, and your financial support allows us to continue connecting listeners across Utah to vital programming and information. We cannot thank you enough.